I am super excited to spend some time talking to an incredible panel, talking about on-shelf availability, on-hand accuracy, buying line pickup in store, and Walmart's initiative to get back into the RFID business uh, to get their on-hands correct. I'm joined by several incredible guests, including Andy Murray, who is the ex-CMO, Chief Marketing Officer at Asda Corporation, also the ex-CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi X. I'm joined by a retired Senior Vice President, Deanna Baker, who was, I attribute to, uh, the leading of getting Walmart back into the RFID for apparel space. Uh, and and uh, really excited to hear the story, behind the scenes story behind that. Dr. Bill Hargrave, who is the University of Memphis professor, but also an industry expert in buy online, pick up in store, and a new term called research online uh, and buy in store. And Justin Patton, who's the director of the RFID lab. So without any further delay, let's hear what the panel has to say. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, my name is Mike Grain, and it is a pleasure to welcome you to another version of the Conversations on Retail and the University of Arkansas podcast. Uh, Matt Pfeiffer and uh, Donnie Williams and I from the University of Arkansas and Conversations on Retail have been doing this for about a year now. And uh, this is obviously the biggest one we have ever done. I think we've got over 60 people who are registered and they're still coming in. We've got another 50 or so that are at a conference in Las Vegas, they've asked for a recording of it. So I'm really, really excited about this one. Uh, and I appreciate our guests taking the time. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna uh, go through a couple of just quick logistical ground rules here. First off, uh, just a, a little bit of background on me. I've been in the industry for 40 years, spent 25 years with Procter & Gamble, actually working with Andy at Procter & Gamble. He'll, he'll probably jump into that a little bit. And then uh, we both were at Walmart for a while. I was in the uh, retail technology area, uh, specifically RFID and retail link and some things like that. And then uh, left Walmart and uh, actually had them uh, call me and come back to do some work with RFID. And that's really the purpose of, of today is to really talk about RFID and the, the uh, implications of the omni-channel customer. So just a couple of quick logistical ground rules. Uh, number one, we're going to try and keep this very interactive. Um, we're going to ask you to stay on mute if, unless you have a question or a comment. Uh, keep your video on, especially when you're asking questions. And obviously, the panelists are going to keep their video on as well. Uh, if you'd rather uh, actually ask your question uh, anonymously, just go ahead and use the chat function. And we'll be monitoring the chat function. And we, this is probably not as relevant as it is to other times, but usually we have, you know, competing suppliers on here who've got uh, technology. So we want to make sure we're following antitrust guidelines and, and making sure that we're not talking about pricing or anything that's competitively sensitive. Okay. Um, again, thanks to conversations on retail with Matt Pfeiffer. Uh, look him up. He's, he's doing some really good job of uh, educating the retail community about things that are going on and capability that's available. And then a university of Arkansas with the, uh, supply chain department with Dr. Williams and, uh, Brian Fugit, uh, doing a great job of really, uh, driving supply chain education. And I, I, I should not say this with Dr. Hargrave on, but they do have the number one Gartner supply chain organization in go hogs. That's all I want to say. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll pay for that one later. Okay. Um, no more background and detail. I want to uh, open it up and uh, do some introductions first. And, and the purpose of this is really to hear from the industry leaders, uh, in my opinion, around the omni-channel, the customer shopping experience, 
the ability for retailers to have enough confidence to expose inventories for buy online and pick up and store. We got a great panel uh, set up for this, but we're going to start for the left. And uh, Deanna, why don't you go ahead and unmute and introduce yourself to the to the audience? Okay, I think I am unmuted, right? You are. Oh, good, awesome. So, thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, Deanna Baker, and I just uh, retired from Walmart after a 32 year career in merchandising, and um, my last position there was. SVP, General Merchandise Manager of Omni Apparel for Walmart US. Omni Apparel, Walmart US. That's a big job, Deanna. <laughs> that's a big job. Gotta love that's it. Big, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to say, I'm going to ask this question just because I saw it on your LinkedIn profile. So I'm assuming it's public knowledge. What's next for Deanna Baker? Well, I was highly creative and I chose the name Deanna Baker Consulting. Um, <laughs> so I am entering into the world of consulting. Um, and the reason I went with my name is because it's spelled so uniquely. I knew that it hadn't been taken. Um, so it'll be free and clear. But uh, that's, that's what I'm doing next. Just in mode of discovery right now, Mike. That's awesome. That's tremendous. So your LinkedIn profile uh, QR code is there. If anybody wants to reach out to her uh, during or after this conference, feel free to do so. Dr. Bill Hargrave, president of the University of Memphis, right? Memphis Thanks, University, right? Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity to be here. Awesome. Al, I've got you set up, but why would I have the president of a university on a podcast? Because Bill has spent probably the better part of 20 years focusing on retail, focusing yeah. on technology, focusing on the omni-channel customer, buy online, pick up and store. And he's gonna spend some time, you probably, I don't know if you still do that as a job or if it's a hobby or it's a little bit of both, but he is the industry expert when it comes to that. So we're gonna to get to hear from him. Yeah, so some would, some would suggest that my job as president is my hobby and my real job is, is retail and RFID, but we'll take that up at a later time. So <laughs> no, my, my, glad, glad to be here, thanks for having me. I have worked with, um, I uh, actually worked with Walmart uh, when I was a professor at the University of Arkansas since 1995, actually, and uh, started on the RFID project in 2003 when Walmart said in 2005, we want to start with our first uh, top 100 suppliers tagging at the BC. I've been on, I, I started working for Walmart on that project then, uh, and I have continued to work on RFID as a project. and. Uh, helping retailers and brand owners across the world since that time. Started the RFID um, lab there at the University of Arkansas, which moved to Auburn. And, um, and Justin has been with me for a long time, who you'll hear from in just a minute. Glad to be here. Thanks, Mike. That's awesome. Thanks, Dr. Hargrave. Appreciate it. Justin Patton, he just set you up for a win, man. Auburn RFID lab director. You've been doing this for about 20 years as well. And you just told me, uh, I asked you a question kind of off camera of, of how many people did you start with at the lab and how many you have now, but go ahead and introduce yourself because you are definitely an expert in this in this field with retail as well as other RFID uh, formats of aerospace and, and other things like that. Mm -hmm. So we've been focusing on uh, RFID um, technology deployment since 2005, um, a lot of retail clearly, um, especially starting there at the University of Arkansas lab. And then uh, also working a lot with the aerospace and aviation right now, whether it's stuff in NASA up in orbit or, you know, with commercial aircraft with baggage tracking and other things. A little bit in pharma. There's a lot going on with uh, food and restaurants, um, supply chain in general. So um, it's not just RFID either. You know, we, we've kind of moved 
in the past 17 years, RFID from, especially passive UHF, from an innovation technology to more of just a deployable tool. It's not really innovation anymore. It's just something you do. Um, but we are very heavily focusing on any type of serialized identification technologies that we can use, um, whether it's computer vision, you know, um, any type of RF systems, whatever it may be, uh, to try to figure out how we're going to get to a, a serialized unit level inventory on everything in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. Outstanding. Outstanding. So, so I didn't, I didn't hear the number. How many did you start oh, with in the lab and, and how right. many do you have at the Auburn RFID lab now? So we started with, uh, you know, it was about 15 to 25 that first year when we were really growing up with, uh, uh students, including me. And then, uh, now we have, um, um, 90, I think 91 people here now and 83 of them are students. Uh, so, uh, and it keeps growing. It's been a, the supply chain has been a little bit messed up the last few years in case nobody noticed uh, <laughs> uh, COVID really kind of threw everybody for a loop. So uh, it's been a, a lot of interesting activity and people trying to figure out how to get their operations back in order for the, the last few years. So it's kind of a boom time for any type of uh, um, ID technology right now. Awesome. Thank you, Justin. Mm -hmm. Mr. Andy Murray. Uh, Andy and I have known each other for a long time. Started a P&G about the same time. Um, he got... Uh, the itch to really go into the consumer shopper marketing brand work, et cetera, had some great runs with uh, brand works, his own companies, as CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi X became a, a thought leader in the marketing department in the Walmart in the U S and then actually became the CMO of ASDA. So uh, Andy, thank you for being here. Um, I completely screwed up your introduction because I did it for you, but uh, what else would you like to share with us? You're on mute, Andy. There you go. So Deanna thought she was on mute and wasn't, and I thought I was. So anyway, uh, thanks, Mike, for that. Uh, good to see you again. Uh, for those you who don't know, Mike was actually my day host at PNG and and got me uh, through the system and and hired. And so I've known Mike for since I think 1984. That's a that's a long journey. Uh, and also was my boss in the and when I moved to Fayetteville. But I love the the passion, very passionate about the space of being customer centric and how do you uh, develop customer centric leadership. And specifically now working a lot around connected commerce and the different areas that that uh, entails. Uh, currently lead as the founder and chair of the Customer Centric Leadership Initiative for the University of Arkansas, which dovetails nicely to a lot of the work, Mike, you're doing around supply chain. So I'm excited to be here and uh, look forward to these conversations. Awesome. Well, I had you introduced last, but I want you to go first, okay? Because from my perspective, Andy, all of this discussion, whether you're a merchandiser, whether you're a technologist, whether you're in the supply chain, whether you're a CPG brand owner, whether you're a retailer, it's all about the customer and the customer's choices about how they receive their product. So you have spent most of your career focusing on that customer and the customer journey. Tell us a little bit about that customer today. Tell us a little bit about what they're looking for and what kind of choices do they have? Sure. You know, Mike, I think uh, the customer's core behaviors and, and thoughts and beliefs about the shopping journey haven't fundamentally changed much, but certain elements have certainly accelerated. Um, I like to look at the customer of having three budgets. We talk about the customer having a budget, but they actually have three budgets that really affects their behavior. They've got a money budget, of course, a time budget, and a frustration budget. 
And those will vary based on categories in terms of how they shop, but it's really important to pay attention to all three of those budgets. And when we get to the subjects of out of stocks and what that means, uh, it really impacts the frustration budget in a way that can influence significantly behavior of the customer. Hmm. So, so talk a little bit about the second two, which is especially the, probably the last one, the frustration budget. What do you mean by a frustration budget? Well, it's uh, it, what's it gets behind what are dissatisfiers and how much they're going to give uh, a certain situation. So it when they're browsing, let's say an in-store environment, they're browsing a category in their mind, they allocate, let's say 90 seconds for this particular category in their mind of how they're thinking about that experience. And if they can't find what they're looking for um, very quickly or within those 90 seconds, they're gone. And they'll often leave the category. They'll often leave the store without a purchase in that on that item. Uh, but when you can satisfy that ex that expectation faster, what we found, especially in refill categories like you know razors and such, uh, they might actually double back and give you browsing behavior if you haven't ex uh, exhausted their frustration budget. But if they're out, if it's out of stock, it really pings that frustration level. And some of the research that that I've seen recently about this topic of the impact on the consumer and their attitudes uh, is is pretty phenomenal. I mean, we think about out of stocks as an industry professional uh, as a lost transaction, perhaps, but it's far bigger than that from the consumer's perspective. It's also a, lo a loss of trust. It's not just about transaction. Uh, and when we look at the um, some of the data behind that, uh, it, it's pretty pretty phenomenal. I mean, they have expectations. They manage, they measure their experience based on um, their expectations. If they expected to find it and they didn't find it, that's what it, and no matter what reason, it doesn't really matter. That is a ding against that particular area of frustration. Um, interesting, I think about uh, the research I had is that uh, when you're out of stock, about 70% will, on the first time, of that particular item they regularly shop, about 70% uh, will get a substitute. The third time that happens, they'll switch brands. Hmm. Um, and because they shop on habit and they've got a limit on what that means for them, and if it happens four or five times, then they often will also, also switch stores. Mm -hmm. and, and that loyalty factor, we talk a lot about loyalty, but the truth behind loyalty, and if, uh, I highly recommend reading the book, How Brands Grow, by Dr. Byron Sharp, but but it's really more about habits and taking friction out of their purchasing uh, process. And if if you can take that friction out, we tend to not think a lot about loyalty. We think about the habits and routines. And when you start getting out of stock, it disrupts that that routine and makes you go do other things. It adds friction to the whole experience, and and that's where uh, we tend to lose customers, and they'll switch out. Um, when we were, uh, when I was at ASDA, we had a, what's called a customer promoter score, which we looked at what drove uh, sharing and promoting the brand and what were the dissatisfiers. And routinely, the dissatisfiers, if you were to rank order them, you'd have clean, fast, and friendly as key drivers of dissatisfaction or satisfaction at the top. But they also, when those missed, it, it really spiked the dissatisfied experience. But right there along with that was, I can't find the item I came in to buy. And whether it's out of stock or too hard to locate, but mostly it was out of stock. It was a huge driver of frustration and friction that was clearly registered for the customer as, as an annoyance uh, that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm.
Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, as we focus on this, we, we learn really quickly that this, this particular quote from Sam Walton is, is just mm -hmm. as relevant as today as it was when he gave it. And it's probably even more so, I would think, uh, Andy, because literally with this technology we all have with us, if I go to the store and expect to purchase something, let's say a printer cartridge for my printer, and I go all the way to that store, I may even call them ahead of time and say, do you have it? Yep, looks like we got three. And you get to the store and you don't have it. People are pulling out these phones and literally ordering it from another retailer in a heartbeat. So they're not necessarily loyal to the brand, i.e. Walmart anymore. They're loyal to the product they want. And they can fire anybody they want simply by spending their money elsewhere. This has made it a breakthrough to be able to do that. So you better have what you, 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 you better have what they want and as we're going to hear from Dr. Hargrave in a minute, if you're going to you're going to have enough confidence to actually expose that inventory, it allows for them to be able to make that decision to purchase it. So, um, yeah, go ahead. It, it, it might just build on that. I think you know, Sam's statement couldn't be more true, but there's an added element today that didn't exist uh, when Mr. Sam uh, shared those words. I mean, it's true that customer can fire everybody in the company and the chairman, but today they can do something much worse not just not shop you, but go to the reviews mm. and talk about you in a way that impacts many, many more people than just them firing you. It's also they put you on notice in ways that's very public. Reviews and ratings drive so much in search and, and being able to help customers make decisions. And, and the last thing you want is um, those reviews spiking negative because of the experiences they're getting. And that's what happens when you get dissatisfied customers. Wow. Great point. Great point. Let's uh, let's turn to migrate a little bit to Deanna. Deanna, you are uh, an interesting position. I'm going to ask you to kind of unmute and tell your story because I know uh, if I go back to it's 2018 and 2019 and you and I were having a conversation about I want to be omni-channel with my retailer at Walmart. I have to become relevant omni-channel wise. And I think I showed you this chart that literally showed the, the percentage of business that is being done in an omni-channel or electronic version. And it was literally almost 37%, almost 40% of the apparel purchases were done online. And you wanted to, you wanted to figure out how to be able to do that more effectively. So go ahead and unmute and tell your story. I think this is a fascinating story of how Walmart got back into the RFID business and what the driving factors were. Sure, I'm happy to share. So at that time, and this is probably the latter half of 2018, we were having a lot of conversations as a team. Um, at that time, Walmart stores and e-commerce were working independently to try and serve the customer uh, with grocery pickup, you know, and scheduling and trying to figure all the kinks out of that and really growing by leaps and bounds. And then also um, shipping, you know, most GM and certainly all of apparel um, to customers home via our fashion distribution centers. So um, I wanted to be able to leverage the store pickup process within what I saw as developing in the stores uh, through grocery pickup for apparel and be able to really leverage that inventory. Um, the issue with, with my goal was that it's really hard to program um, a business that has a high degree of variability in sales from store to store and has a relatively short shelf life, right? I mean, in apparel, the aim is to sell through that inventory of a season get a high sell through, move on to the next set. And then in addition, um, you just think about the, the shirt you're wearing right now, the t-shirt you're wearing. Um, that could come in 
10 or more colors, six or more sizes, so 60 SKUs, right? The slowest of those size color combos might hold one item in each store. Um, and so, you know, gambling on building around apparel with something that was going to be that volatile, um, we were going to need some help. Um, I knew the customer was rapidly changing. You and I had talked, um, and they were adapting to shopping back and forth across channels with ease. Um, it was definitely our problem to solve. And they were in the driver's seat. So it didn't really matter if my goal was going to be difficult to achieve. We had to figure it out. And, you know, so I started studying other retailers and they were doing it and seeing value in it. You know, we studied the likes of Macy's, Lululemon, Target, and they all were, you know, full steam ahead. Um, I knew that in order to be included in the store pickup program and the internal tools that were being developed for our store associates, apparel had to become as systematic as possible, like the rest of the box. And being a one-off process was not going to really get any traction inside our organization. Um, also knew that resource investment would only occur if there was trust in our inventory accuracy. Um, no one was going to spend precious labor to chase down phantom inventory to then just ultimately disappoint customers. Back to that frustration point Andy made earlier. Um, I knew inflating the inventory to ensure the items were available was also not an answer, right? We need to be confident in the accuracy down to one piece of each size color combo of every program. Um, so after researching and getting leadership buy-in um, through those discussions, we were given the green light to investigate further. So we came to see, see you all. Um, met with you and all of our assumptions were backed up with the, the stats that you just shared with the group here. Um, the customer is indeed shopping more and more with Omni Solutions for their product. Um, you know, at, at, you said 37, 38% digitally penetrated, whether it's, you know, pick up BOPIS or um, direct to their, their stores via fulfillment center. Um, and then when you said that the entire apparel industry, not just Walmart, had an accuracy rate of about 50%, um, that was shocking to me. You know, it wasn't just my problem. It was an industry problem. So, um, you know, I told you, I want to be able to compete in an Omnisore fulfillment, and I can't today. Um, how do we fix the inaccurate inventory data, and where in the world do I start? Um, so, you know, as that journey continued, one of the first steps was in understanding how RFID actually worked, and not what I remembered from a, some attempts in the past. And overcoming that, um, I, I think, was a, a, a huge step change for our organization. Um, we flew to Auburn University RFID lab, met the team there, including Justin. He walked us through. Um, and we learned about the technology behind RFID, the tickets themselves, what it took to make a ticket even, and what, depending on the route you wanted to take, what the technology could or, or couldn't do. Um, and so, you know, ultimately we decided for a really quick win. Our, our quickest win was to clear up the inventory, make sure that we knew what we had. Um, and we had other dis discussions on infrastructure that could be used. So we fully vetted it. Um, but in the end, cost and time were our two biggest factors that, that made our decision. We gained leadership buy-in. We rallied the organization to secure resources and develop internal processes and tools for our store associates in 4,000 stores. Because if we couldn't make them successful in using the technology, it was going to fall flat. Um, once we got that, we communicated with all of our supplier partners, right, and really rallied them. And it took a full year 
to flush through the inventory to be all RFID tagged. Um, you know, that time we were doing store testing, uh, making sure that all the tags were being captured and the scans were, were good and that we could actually create the value that, that RFID was going to give us. So, um, you know, I, this, I have super oversimplified what went on um, in the interest of time, but, you know, the truth is that none of this really would have come to fruition had we not had advocates and champions within the various disciplines of the box to really help us bring RFID um, to, a, to, to Walmart and, and our dream of reality. Um, so, you know, Mike, I, I think, you know, what you and I talked about as of late, you know, the, the, the true success mark is the fact that not only has it proven value for apparel, but by tackling the most skew intensive, the most laborious product in the box to manage, um, it, it really can now be leveraged across many categories inside Walmart, right? So uh, many GM categories are now able to, to utilize that and, and extract value um, from RFID. So two questions that I just got. Uh, the first one is this wasn't Walmart's first go around about RFID. I mean, Dr. Argrave mentioned that it started back in 2003. There was a Sam's iteration. There was a Walmart apparel uh, one that ended up uh, having to get shut down because of some patent laws that we had to work through as an industry. You took a really brave move to push back and say it may not have been right the business case that then, or we had some other issues, but we need to move forward. And you did that with confidence. Tell me what kind of, because there's other retailers on the line here who are probably having the same conversations. Ah, that doesn't really work and it's too expensive, et cetera. How did you combat? I don't want specifics, but how did you combat that old history of what we have done in the past and why are we trying this again? Yeah. Well, it's just, you know, as a merchant, an answer can be right or wrong, depending on the variables around it. Right, so timing is everything. Um, you know, there were there were definitely hurdles in the past. One just being the cost of tickets alone. Right, when you're talking about EDLP opening price point on a, a large portion of, of the assortment. Um, but honestly, it was educating everyone in our organization of why now was the right time, and actually what it would unlock. So, trying to focus on the goal of having apparel be picked. That was the goal. And see, that was new. We weren't talking about that in 2003, right? So there was a new solution that needed to be met and a problem to solve. And the technology was right to do that. So, I mean, in all fairness, it's, it's the timing was dead on for us. Awesome. Uh, the second question I'm getting is you also had a pretty large, uh, focus and direction on working collaboratively with your suppliers, your brand owners, mm -hmm. uh, because they're part of that solution. They have to do the RFID tagging at source in order for this to be successful. Uh, what were some of the key ahas and learnings and, and how you made that successful? Because you got basically all of your apparel suppliers to jump on board. Yeah, yeah. Devils in the details is what I would say to that, because, um, you know, as a leader, you have to really get down in the weeds with your team at the inception. And, OK, what does it mean if I want to tag everything? Well, we have umpteen different kinds of, of tags, right? We have stickers. What do you do for that? We have things that are on metal. What do you do for that? And really helping clear the way for them to run fast. Um, I think was was at the beginning. So there were a lot of conversations with suppliers 
um, why we were doing this now. I've always been of the opinion to share as much as I can with our supplier base because they are my hands and feet and extension of what I'm able to do. And so really communicating the reasons why to them and then being able to question back kind of helped me uh, see some blind spots I had. And so just you have to leverage them as partners and, and be willing to take the criticism. Um, but they all rose to the challenge and uh, couldn't ask for a better supplier community, honestly. That's awesome. Awesome. All right, let me go ahead and take a pause real quick. Um, I, I don't have any more questions in the chats that are, that are relative. I've got a couple of questions, but that are more uh, focused against, I think, Dr. Hargrave and, and Justin. Uh, let me give the opportunity to unmute for anybody who's on the actual uh, podcast. Matt, are we able to allow them to be able to unmute and ask a question of either Andy about the consumer shopper or Deanna from a merchandise retailer perspective? Do we have any questions out there? Uh, Matt, are they able to ask questions or not? They are able to raise their hand okay. or submit a question via okay. the Q&A. So if you that. have a question for, for either one, um, well, I've got one here. Uh, let me just say this. If you have a question, I should have been more clear on this. Go ahead and raise your hand on the chat, and uh, Matt will unmute you, and you can ask your question uh, uh, live. I got a question from George's. Um, can you talk a bit about why large organizations take a long time to adopt new technology, knowing that many of the merchandise were already RFIT tagged for a long time? And that's for anybody on the panel. That could be a Dr. Hargrave and Justin question as well. But you know, why does it why does it take so long to to get the adoption? Justin or Dr. Hargrave, you guys want to answer that one? Because I think that's a, you guys deal with a lot more retailers. Any, any perspective you got on why it takes so long? Well, I can say, you know, this question is about new tech in general. So I can speak from the perspective of, of RFID, but a, a lot of it's because it's a, a changes at the source. So you're having to go back to um, the, the factory level when it comes to RFID. And then the other thing I think that really has been um, um, a hurdle to overcome is it's not the technology, it's not the hardware, it's not the tags and the readers and all that stuff too. The, the problem is that we're moving to a serialized unit level inventory management system. So we're not doing quantity level accounting anymore. We're moving to individual records of each item. And most people in the supply chain, whether they're shippers or 3PLs or DCs, and definitely most stores are not set up to handle serialized inventory management systems. So what that means is that we're collecting a lot of data and people are either compressing it down to quantity on hands by field, or they're spending a whole lot of time trying to update their existing um, um, systems to handle all that data. I mean, we're talking about exponential change. You can make an ASN with 300 items in there in two fields, a SKU number and a quantity. But if you go to RFID, those are 300 individual fields from mm -hmm. uh, serialized inventory perspective. So I think the biggest problem has been on the uh, uh, the back end and, and figuring out how to leverage and use all the data and all that that entails, uh, more so than just uh, uh, putting the hardware on. But it's, it's no small task to ask people to put all these tags on at source and all these different locations as well. It just, it's, this is not a one, two quarter project. And that's another thing, too, is a lot of people need some type of results faster. The culture of retail now, as I think most people acknowledge, is, is much, much faster than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. People need to be able to deliver numbers in 
in a year, they don't have two and three and four year initiatives sometimes to, uh, to work against. So yep. I think yep. it, there's a lot of pressures on that. that yep. Yeah. I, I think the other thing of being around this for 20 years as well is this is not a technology problem project. It's not. It is a what's the business problem? What's the technology solution? There's Deanna, you just said it from the time you said we need you guys to do this from a supplier till we've we got all of the tags coming into the store tagged and tagged correctly was a year. And and that was with a group of suppliers that for the most part had understanding of how RFID tags work, et cetera. Then we've got store and we got technology to put in place. We have databases to build, we've got store process to include. We got training to do. We've got execution to do. We got monitoring to do, and make sure all the KPIs. These are major, major efforts to fundamentally change the business process. It's not just well. I saw the RFID demo. It looks simple. Yeah, the the demo looks simple, but actually put it into practice is very difficult. And Michael, uh, Dave, if I would just go ahead. Add the coordination of the different groups that need to come together. So I had suppliers saying, "Okay, Deanna, I'm going to be putting tags on this. It's going to cost money." for the next year and it can't even be leveraged. When will the technology be ready in stores for us to get a bang for the buck, right? And then I'll see my orders increase because the inventory you think you have will come out and the system's going then reorder to get you back in stock. When will I see that? So there was a whole lot of orchestration yep. that had to go on. So when you just think about a retailer of any size, I just think it's, I mean, it's, it's complicated no matter if it's a small, small specialized retailer, but it's just exponentially uh, you know, large. 100%. Yep. Uh, Pete Davis, uh, you've got your hand up. You've been patient. Uh, go ahead and unmute and uh, ask your question. Hey, Mike, just confirming you guys can hear me okay. We can. Fine. Yes, sir. Great. We are a D10 battery supplier. We just went live. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> we just went live last week with RFID. Uh, recently just left store 100 to see how the tags are looking. But what we're experiencing right now is a shortage of RFID tags. Uh, mm. Justin, I know we worked with you at the Auburn store over there in Alabama. Um, and I know lead acid presents a whole unique challenge. But as Walmart expands the RFID program, I see more and more demand coming for RFID tags. What's the panel's thoughts on overall global availability of RFID tags? I can, I can probably cover this because I do this about half of every day. So um, like uh, <laughs> this is the number one question we get asked a lot. So right now um, in 20, this year, we're looking at about 30 billion RFID tags going on products globally in 2022. 2023, we're looking at about 50 plus billion, I think. So um, that's a pretty significant growth curve. Um, there was some supply chain constraints, not just in RFID, but just in chipset availability in general. You saw this with pickup trucks backed up on loading docks, waiting for ECU chips and things like that, too. Um, that has eased considerably. There's two things. There's a lot more foundries that have come online, and then also consumer demand has backed off. So there was a, a short-term pinch in terms of uh, tag and chipset availability, um, but it's looking like um, that should be cleared up by Q1 next year. Um, there may be some lingering into Q2 for some specialty uh, uh, tags and chipsets, but it's not really a passive UHF thing. It's just a, everything got backed up for a while. I mean, furniture was three months out in some places. So I think, uh, um, you know, chipset availability was short, but um, it's, it's pretty well 
cleared and, up. And, and Pete, if I can add, you know, when I was working at Walmart, both for the apparel implementation, working with Deanna's team, as well as the, the uh, home and entertainment and hard lines and automotive, one of the things that we did before we talked to any supplier about doing this is went and talked to the various inlay manufacturers, the Impinges, the NXPs, the Avery Denisons, the Smart Tracks, the SMLs, et cetera. And basically said, we're about to go do a big ask. This is about the amount of volume that we're going to ask either for our suppliers or for in-store tagging. Are we good? We did that both times. Now, what ends up happening is the big number together, we may be good, but unfortunately, they've only got 30% and they've got 30% and they've got 40%. So they're buckets of it between the inlay manufacturers. But we definitely do not do anything like... Well, let's just go out and ask them and they'll figure it out. It's, it's very, very, really, to, to Deanna's point, we collaborate with not only our suppliers of product, but we, we, we collaborate very closely with our technology suppliers to make sure the hardware and the software and the tag availability is there to be able to do that. Unfortunately, Justin gets to deal with all of the issues because somebody wants some from this company that doesn't have enough and they've got to get it from somebody else, et cetera, and that does happen. Um, I'm going to answer one, one more question from Scott. Uh, Scott Wynn, are there different types of RFID tags that will work with only specific type of systems, <laughs> i.e., I love this analogy, beta versus VHS? Justin, we'll have to explain what beta and VHS is to you probably. Um, well, let's, look, we're going to hold that particular question until Justin talks a little bit about the RFID technology. Um, I'm going to go ahead and switch to Dr. Hargrave, um, and, and I'm going to kind of set it up as a little bit, okay, so we've heard from the shopper perspective that they want to know where products are, buy online and pick up in store and have enough trust, et cetera. We've heard from Deanna going, I want to be an omni-channel retailer, and I'm going to figure out how to, how to drive this particular work, and it was obviously very successful at Walmart. I guess the big question for you is from an industry expert, um, we want to know, it's been around for a long time. Tell us how RFID is enabling this omni-channel buy online and pick up as a store kind of activity from your perspective. Yeah, so, so let, me, let me add a little bit of, of um, uh, flavor and, and some, some information, uh, some data around uh, omni-channel. Uh, and, and that'll lead me into the use of RFID. I want to go back a few years, and and uh, Deanna, you know, was looking at this in 2018, and it was actually at, at a I was at a conference. I don't remember where it was now, but it was in 2018, and omni-channel been talked about talked about for three or four years, right? It was starting to become really the buzzword, and there was some data presented. I I, I don't remember who it was, but they, they suggested that 80 percent of retailers believed they were omni-channel enabled. That they were they were omnichannel, eighty uh, percent. And I thought, you know, that's that's really an interesting number because you know we had been working with RFID and many retailers who were struggling just to have good inventory accuracy. And so we we did some work then at the lab at the time of, of what does it really take to be omnichannel? We built some these this model around the elements, and and one of the characteristics. Or one of the cap I'm sorry, one of the capabilities that you need to be omnichannel ready is buy online, pick up, and store. In fact, we would argue that's the simplest capability that you can add as an omnichannel retailer, right? What's more simple than saying, hey, I want to buy it, I'm gonna come by the store and pick it up. So, so you know, we started looking at that actually in 2018, uh, during the holiday season of 2018, to just do a test of how well are retailers executing on this omni-channel promise, and in particular, buy online, pick up, and store? 
Now, I want to put this in perspective on how important that capability is to our, our consumers, following what Andy and, and uh, Deanna were talking about. So these are 2021 numbers, because obviously we're still in 2022. But in 2021, 64% of, of U.S. shoppers regularly did some type of BOPUS. 75% did BOPUS at least some point during 2021. Now you think about th those numbers are actually pretty staggering, right? That's a, that is a, a deep penetration into a capability. Um, yet only seven or only 53% of retailers actually offer that as an option. Now, I also want to make sure that we, we, you know, we talk about buy online, pick up and storage, but there's a kind of a hidden BOPUS called Robus Research Online and Buy in Store. And that's where. For example, Mike, the, the, the slide that you're showing on the screen now, what a lot of people will do, and I, and I would challenge you, you know, those on the panel, probably those on the call uh, or on the, the webinar today, how many times have you went and said, hey, let me just go check the website and see if they show that they have it in store. I'm not going to do a, a buy online pick up store, but if I see that they have it, hey, I'm, I'm 10 minutes from the store, I'll run by, right? Um, and, and so, you know, that's a, that's a hidden part of BOPUS is that research online buying store. 74% of consumers have done that at least once during the, the year. Lots of, you know, we, we have all kinds of data about what that really means. And we're seeing that, you know, for example, in, in, in 2021, $81 billion of merchandise sold via BOPUS. 40% of the holiday season 2021, BOPUS. Um, and, and, you know, from an operations perspective, BOPUS is fantastic. It costs 90% less when doing BOPUS and picking it up in the store for the retailer versus shipping it. And there's an added benefit of that right now, the, the best estimate that we have based upon tracking credit card information is there's 25% there's of the consumers who go in to pick up a BOPUS order, buy something else. So, right, right that's, that's bonus. You're getting them in the store, they're buying it. However, execution is not good. And I've got some data I share on that uh, from our own studies, but there, there was some interesting data came out uh, again late uh, or early this year based upon 2021 data that about 50% of BOPUS transactions had some type of issues. 45 million units that were tried, tried to be you know, buy online, pick up store, 45 million units not found, which, which results in about 670 million in lost revenue and 226 million in wasted labor costs from people going and looking for the items and couldn't find it. So with all that, you know, what, what are we doing as far as retailers? And, our, you know, I, I've suggested that we're not executing properly. I, we, we've got all kinds of uh, papers out there. If you go to auburn.edu slash RFID, there's papers out there that show the results of our studies on BOPUS. But here's the thing, just a couple of stats from those, from those studies. You see on the screen there, this, this slide, and it might go to the previous slide. And you see there, there's a different slide from a different retailer and you see, you know, here's two day delivery. And then, and then on go back to the, the, the next slide, and here it tells you, okay, you can pick it up tomorrow. So one's buy online, pick up in store. The other one is kind of a faux buy online, pick up in store, right? That 
that it'll be ready in two days or you can get it delivered in two days. Yeah, the first one, the one key... was this one. The first one was pre RFID at Walmart. It was just yep. fulfillment from a fulfillment center. It wasn't pickup gotcha. in store. Got, gotcha, gotcha. All right, and, and so, so with with this one, you see, okay, they're they're giving you how how many items that they have. That's one of the most important things that consumers look for when they buy online pickup in store. They want to know, you know, it, do you have it? And again, it could be that because I want to run by the store and get it. Yet only thirty five percent of retailers from our studies are providing that inventory count. And here's the, here's the bigger one, uh, Mike. The accuracy of the online inventory count from our research is about 13%. Hmm. So the root cause of all of that is poor inventory accuracy at the store. So, so right. walk, walk, I think it's important to walk through that. Where did you get that number? You actually sent students to the store and literally had them do the research that says they have four, but they don't have four. Is that is that yeah. how you collected we, that data? We, we did across a lot of retailers, across a lot of categories, across a lot of, a lot of items. We're literally we we would be in the store and we would we would we would pick out uh, you know products at random. We would see you know if they showed it online what they showed uh, in the store versus what we saw in the store, or if they didn't show it on, if they didn't give you a count, did they actually say they had it in stock? And in many cases, Mike, what we would see is we'd be standing in the store and say, all right, we want to buy online pickup in store. And the retailer would say, sorry, that's out of stock. Yet we're looking at it in the store, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so you're actually keeping somebody's from buying that or they would say, yes, you'll be ready in an hour by my pick store. And we're looking and it, there is nothing in the store. So, so, you know, that 13%, that's a ridiculously low number. We know that inventory accuracy is a problem, but it really highlights the issues that we have when you're going to put it out there for everybody to see, which by the way, is probably why only 35% actually put that number out there because they're really not sure what mm -hmm. they have. Yeah, just to just to build on that, I'm, I know we've used these numbers before a lot, Justin and, and Dr. Hargrave. And in fact, actually, my conversation with Deanna is I got four items here and basically three of them are wrong uh, from an accuracy perspective. Some of them, Justin, are literally ghost inventory, which says we have three, but we don't have any. If we don't have any, we don't sell any. If we do, if we think we have three, we're not going to reorder because our reorder point is two. So we've been quoting 50 to 65%, Dr. Hargrave, of just inventory accuracy. But what you're saying is for buy online, pick up and store research, it's actually lower than that is what you're telling us. Well, it, it's lower than that because of the way that they're trying to present it online and, and trying to share that information. And and what happens is retailers were finding hide, in, hide inventory. Uh, right from the consumers, which you think as a retailer kind of blows your mind. Why in the world would you want to hide inventory from somebody who's trying to buy it? Well, it's because they're not sure that they have something, right? And so, so instead of instead of taking that risk of saying yes, we have it, you know, come in and buy it, or we'll you know we'll hold it for you, they'd rather tell you they don't have it than to have you come to the store and be disappointed. And so they're hiding it. So Mike, that's why that inventory accuracy is lower in BOPUS because they're intentionally hiding product from, from the consumer, which again right. is ridiculous. And, and, you know, we're seeing more and more retailers who are using RFID because you get from that, um, that 50 to 65%, you get that up to the upper nineties. Now you have confidence that when you say we have three, we have three. 
right? And when you get down and you say we have one, we have one, right? You down to the individual level. And that's the difference that RFID makes that you just can't get there otherwise. Gotcha. Justin, I'm going to, I'm going to transition to you. Um, we got a bunch of questions here that are kind of more how to get started. I'm going to put uh, the slide up that kind of describes how RFID works. Maybe you can walk through that. And I do have a specific question from Scott Wynn, which is, is this kind of like VHS versus Betamax? And how, how does this work so you can share this information across multiple retailers, brand owners, et cetera? But bottom line is, how does RFID work and how is that industry standard so there is their guidelines of what tags to select and exactly how to how to make sure that people can read them across the platform. Sure. So, so RFID is a is a blanket term that covers hundreds of technologies. So basically, anything that works over radio waves to identify something is technically RFID. That includes you know passive UHF, HF, which is a lot of what you use for hotel room key cards and and uh, payment systems and things like that. Um, Bluetooth is technically RFID. Wi-Fi is technically RFID when it's used for identification markers. Um, there's there's hundreds of different flavors or types of RFID. The one that we talk about the most here is a passive UHF. Um, passive UHF means that there's uh, no battery on board. So when you see those tags on the left-hand side of the screen, there's a small silicon chip, and then there's the antenna that goes around it, which is usually um, um, printed aluminum ink. It's like the same ink that they would use on a toothpaste box or something like that. Um, the way it works is you have a reader, you have a couple of different types on the right there. That antenna is directional, so it sends out a signal uh, towards the tag. It charges up the tag. The tag responds back with its identification number to the reader unit. So the advantage over a, a, a traditional barcode is you can read hundreds per second. You can read them very, very quickly. So you can read 400 plus tags per second. Um, and then also because it's radio waves, you can read through things. So you can read through boxes, you can read through stacks of clothing and, and, and things like that. So um, um, with that speed to count and then that ability to not require line of sight to count, what passive UHF RFID is, 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 is an amazing technology for counting a lot of inventory very, very quickly. Um, going from a, a section of a store that may have 10,000 items that may take a few hours to count with a manual barcode, um, we can count that whole section down in, in two or three minutes. So um, um, at, its, at its core, um, um, there are different kinds of RFID readers. There's handhelds, which is what most people use. You just walk around and cycle count it. Handhelds are not just used for cycle counting. They can also be used as a finder function to find things. There's overhead systems that will monitor whether things are going in and out of an area or even location within a space. If you have some overhead systems that are covering a space to try to find items in a specific area. Uh, robotic systems are pretty great. I mean, robotic systems are kind of like a handheld that moves by itself. So um, it can go through a space and, and count things that way. Uh, but it collects all of that data. It pushes to some type of uh, um, system that's going to manage that, whether it's local software infrastructure, cloud solution, whatever it may be. And then we normally do a little bit of uh, investigation to validate that we trust the data. And then if we do, then we update the on-hands against uh, what RFID tells us. Um, at its base level, that's how most RFID works in, in uh, uh, retail operations. Perfect. I'm going to throw out about three or four questions kind of rapid style because I want to make sure we get to everybody's questions. Uh, Denise is saying, 
Uh, this is probably for Dr. Hargrave and Justin. Is a broad statement to say most everything in a store could be enabled in RFID other than grocery? And I would argue there's parts of grocery that are currently being, especially the food area, that are definitely taking advantage of RFID from an outdated product, et cetera. But is it safe to say that everything other than grocery, which is the question, can be RFID enabled? I think that's a safe statement to make at this point. I mean, mm -hmm. we, most every category, I mean, we, we, you have its challenges and that, that we find ways to work around it. And we're, we're starting to see it now on, on various elements of, of grocery, depending upon what it is. But um, yes, I think that's a fair statement. Justin, yep. do you agree with that? Yeah, right now, one of the biggest new initiatives is uh, restaurants. So you're seeing a lot of restaurants. Mm -hmm. They're getting into it now with uh, tracking food, everything from hamburgers to, you know, French fries through their supply chain uh, for FISMA compliance and traceability and other things. And then also at the case level and even at the item level, you know, we're seeing um, BLE, Bluetooth, all kinds of other stuff, which are technically RF technologies on that. So there's, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat there, but I, I would, there's not many things that are just totally out of play in terms of automated identification in a store in the yep. next, you know, five years. Yep. And I had a I had a really good conversation with a, an old uh, boss of mine, Adam Anderson, who was at Avery Dennison, and he's talking about some of the great things they're doing in terms of putting RFID tags on packaged meat and bakery, et cetera, for product rotation and markdowns, et cetera, mm -hmm. so you can donate the product before you throw it away, and the cons consumer always has the freshest product. I think it's, I think the sky's the limit. We are also seeing some some indications from a pharmacy perspective of tracking you know pharmacy medications and things like that. So I think it's definitely gonna gonna be taken off. Um, Steve has asked. Um, uh, based on the U.S., are there campuses uh, in APAC or ANZ that replicate the RFID testing that you do? And I think that's for you, Justin. For the lab? Um, yeah. We do benchmark testing for uh, inlay performance through the ARC program. There's about, I think the last count, there's about 150 different chambers globally that are kind of calibrated back to this main unit where people do development and testing for tags and inlays. So there's a lot. Um, and, you know, when it comes to some of the testing we do now, it's just um, where the suppliers did proper formatting and stuff like that, too. Um, I think lots of people have their own homegrown programs and things as well. So um, I think that there's a lot of different areas that do pieces of what we do. I mean, but everybody likes to think that they're the best in, in their in their space. So uh, I think so far we're the only one that kind of brings all this together in one academic institution anywhere. Yep. So, uh, Dr. Hargrave, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point to you on this one, um, and, and I'm going to build on it a little bit. So it's based on your experience. Can you contrast Amazon's ability to change and execute compared to a traditional brick-and-mortar retailer? Was, what was the impact of Amazon's impact of retailers to move faster? And then I'm going to add on to that. For the BOPIS work, what did the 2020 global pandemic do to retailers having to react quicker because people didn't want to go in the store? I think that's why we're dealing with some of that as people jumped into it because they had to, but they weren't really ready to. So yeah. Amazon's impact and then the, uh, the global pandemic's uh, impact. Yeah, you know, so, so uh, very quickly and simply, uh, if you think about the difference between managing a distribution center or warehouse versus a store, you can get to Six Sigma, right? Processes are repeatable, they're consistent, they're, uh, they're predictable. Uh, you, can, you can get there in, in a distribution center. Uh, in a store, I like to say that there, there's no Sigma, right? I mean, it's, it's, you can't predict um, that processes are not consistent because customers 
kind of customers mess everything up in the store, right? <laughs> their, their behavior is not predictable. The sales are not predictable with any type of accuracy. So therefore, it's much harder in the store to control inventory and to know what you have and where it is versus in, in the distribution center, which is why, by the way, in 2000, Walmart start in the distribution center at case level, not individual item. But that's why Amazon was able to move so much, much quicker. And, and was Amazon's impact um, for retailers to move faster? Absolutely, it was. there was an impact because Amazon was owning that space of, of providing to the, to the consumer what they have, right? And, and uh, you know, we, I think we used the example earlier, uh, I think it was Andy that, look, if you're in the store and, and you're wanting to buy something, they don't have it, I'll go to Amazon and I'll, I'll buy it from right there because Amazon will tell you what, you, you know, hey, I've got it, you'll get it tomorrow or you get it in two days. That's what caused the retailers to move faster. Now, your second part of the question about what did the pandemic do to BOPUS? Well, it shined a gigantic light on those retailers who could not execute, right? Because consumers completely shifted their behavior of, you know what, I don't want to go in the store, but I still want to buy stuff from you. And those retailers who didn't know what they had, they failed to execute. And boy, it, it ran the consumers away because they found, they found the retailers who could execute. And we saw these retailers like Lululemon and Nike who were tagging everything, who absolutely outperformed everybody else when it came to execution during that time. I saw a quote by the CEO of Nike who said, if you're in a Dick's Sporting Goods or an Academy and you can't find our stuff, you come to us, we'll get it to you. That's a little yep. bit brazen, but I mean, what he's saying is we know where our stuff is. Yep. We know what we have and we know where it's located. We will get you the product you want, even if unfortunately a brick and mortar retailer can't do that. And, and he, he could say that because they had the confidence right. of knowing what they had. Right, right. Well, I am so happy that we've had a chance to talk about this and, and we're still getting questions in, but we're going to have to, we're going to have to cut it off uh, at this point in time. Uh, a couple of things that I want to just add on because I've been doing this for, for literally 20 years. These are my, these are my takeaways. Um, number one, this is business driven technology. This is not technology looking for a shiny object. You've got to have a business uh, problem and then you have to apply the right technology to it. And I think so many times we've, we've looked for the shiny object, which is this is good technology. Let's, let's go check it out and see what we can do with it. That's not the way this works. Number two, when I put the slide together and I shared this at uh, RFID Journal, Deanna, you were the one I had right here in the middle of the thing, retailer top leadership sponsorship. Not an innovation lab, not a tech lab, none of that stuff. We need people who are leading it from the top of the company, from a merchandising and operations saying, we can't continue to operate if we don't know what we have and we don't know where it's located. So I, again, thank you and give you a tremendous amount of credit for really pushing that initiative, at least for Walmart and frankly, for the rest of the industry. Uh, I know we took a number of ch uh, chats at it, but I, I feel really, really good about where we are. Thirdly, and this is Scott Wynn's question, this is all driven on industry standard. So a tag that you can read in a Walmart will work in a Target, will work in a Macy's, it'll work across the industry. We're not, well, I'm not going to say that. Some retailers are demanding using specific tags, but for the most part, most of them follow the Auburn ARC spec, which is these are the set of tags that will work for this business use case, for this category. Uh, the way you encode the tag, use GS1 standards, which is, uh, which is perfect. 
And then the last two is measure everything, everything in process as well as the KPIs for results. I like what you said, Deanna, share the results with your retailer or with your CPG partners because at the end of the day, they're already making an investment hoping this is going to drive better sales for them. If you can share that with them, that's, that's awesome. That's the way it should be. Uh, because the retailer is also investing hardware, software, people, labor, processes, databases, et cetera. They're spending a lot of money to do this as well. Everybody's going to win if we do this the right way. And last but not least, the data capture that Justin talked about. Really think about what you want to do short term versus what you want to do long term. Uh, Deanna, we made a decision to use handhelds. That was the right decision because we wanted to move quickly. That has some definite benefits of being able to be fairly inexpensive and fairly quick to implement. It has some long-term implications of people get tired of wanding and there's some things like shrink and, and asset protection kinds of things you can't do with a handheld with a wand, but you really need different uh, data capture messages. So uh, those are my things. Deanna, Andy, Justin, Dr. Hargrave, thank you so much. Uh, I really do appreciate this. For those of you on the, uh, the call, uh, we will be... Uh, creating both a video and an audio podcast of this and be and making it available uh, in, a, in probably a couple of weeks. It'll take us some time to get that all set up, but we'll do that through both Conversations Retail as well as the University of Arkansas. So uh, I've got uh, 301, so we're a whole one minute over, but I think we started a minute late. So Deanna, Andy, Justin, Dr. Hargrave, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and we certainly appreciate you giving back to the industry. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. I hope you enjoyed that podcast on the RFID apparel story at Walmart and the industry experts regarding uh, buy online, pick up in store, research online, pick up in store, the customer engagement and, and interaction of that, and then specifically how you get started and what some of the fundamentals are. Join us next time. We are going to go back into the fixed camera space. Uh, we're going to be joined uh, by a couple of companies that do uh, actual in-store data collection and analysis. One is the Trex Corporation and one is Field Agent Corporation. Please join us next time for that podcast. Take care.